Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. We work as one team. So when we work with one company, we bring the whole firm along that journey. A holistic, collaborative approach to venture capital accelerates key insights and better allocates resources. It can also foster a deep sense of commitment and shared success between entrepreneurs and investors. For me, that's a big part of the fun part of investing is bringing a lot of what I've done throughout my career into the trenches with our founders every day. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. In the startup world, where the stakes are the highest, businesses need guidance on how to smartly build value and stand out from the crowd. Today's guest draws on our vast experience to provide that expertise to businesses at critical stages of their development. This week, we sit down with Allison Lane Engel, a partner at Graycroft. Graycroft is a venture capital firm that invests in early and growth stage technology companies, primarily across consumer, enterprise software, fintech, and health tech. They manage over $2 billion in capital and made more than 200 investments, including household names like Venmo, The Real Real, Goop, and Bumble. Allison joined Graycroft in 2019 and focuses on early stage companies in fintech, and their active investments include Cardless, Klasha, Spectrum Labs, and Toggle, among others. She has 20 plus years of experience leading, structuring, and scaling high growth businesses. Prior to Graycroft, Allison held positions as the VP of Marketing at LinkedIn, where for six years she had a broad impact on their advertising business unit, and then as the first Chief Marketing Officer at Stripe. Before that, Allison was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, focused on media, entertainment, and the consumer sectors. Her media background includes HBO and the CBS television network, where she worked in sales and programming roles. She holds a BA in communications from UCLA and an MBA from Wharton. Let's enter the arena with Allison Lane Engel. I was always just in search of roles where I could have the biggest impact and work that felt really true to me. Um, So early on, I had a passion for media. That's what brought me to UCLA to study in the comm school there. As you mentioned, ended up at CBS and then later on was at HBO and loved that work. But I was I was always in search, I think, of something entrepreneurial. So it took me to go through business school, had an amazing few years as a banker at Goldman Sachs, which is like pinnacle of of finance and, and just incredibly high bar for work. But I just, at the, after all of that, so kind of 10 years into my career, found myself still f- like searching for the, for the right thing. And it was a mentor of mine who recommended I consider going to a startup, that I, I didn't want kind of a point solution role. I wanted to wear a lot of different hats. And so being at a startup was the place to do that. These large companies, you end up quite siloed. They're amazing careers, but you end up doing something very specific. So 
I ended up reaching out to a, a founder in the New York City startup scene. This is in 2004, so pretty early for, for the New York venture world. And that experience changed my life. It was a video game advertising business. We scaled that company and sold it to Microsoft two years later. And kind of the rest for me is history. That really changed, I think, my passion you know, for work and, and where I wanted to spend time. And then that, that kind of continued throughout my career. And I think it's that same entrepreneurial energy that brought me to Graycroft and gives me so much of the passion I have now to do what I'm doing. Yeah, well, that choice seemed to have kind of shot you out of a cannon because it led to Stripe and LinkedIn and, you know, super high profile and impactful positions. And so after all of that, how did the Graycroft opportunity come to you? Yeah, sure. I was connected to some folks at Graycroft and knew Dana Settle, our co-founder, back from early networks in New York and through other networks. And so we had stayed in touch. And at that point, I had taken a career break and had spent some time back to kind of soul searching on what this next chapter could be. And after I spent time with the firm and and learned more about our really collaborative approach to investing, how close the partners are to the founders that we work with, it just seemed like a great fit. So I jumped in and that was uh, spring of 2019. Yeah. And like, what do you think makes it different? There's so much money sloshing around in tech venture capital. Like, what is the secret sauce that makes you all great? Because you obviously are invested in amazing companies and have a great track record. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think, yeah, if you go to every venture capital website, they kind of all sound the same and look the same to a certain degree. And But it's in the layers of the work every day. So it really starts with, I think, the the compassion we bring to the founders we work with and the deep work we do to really uniquely understand not only their business, but the market that they're playing in. And it's also our collaborative approach, which really speaks to me. I've been an operator far longer than I have been an investor. And and you only scale as an operator by bringing people with you, by being highly transparent and, and really motivating a whole team around you. And we're about a 50 person firm Most people split between New York and Los Angeles. We have some folks in San Francisco. I'm in Denver. But we work as one team. So when we work with one company, we bring the whole firm along that journey. Some investment firms can be quite siloed. It can be kind of a very solo, you know, deal-driven environment. And deals are like at the core of the work, but that's a very transactional way to look at venture capital. We look at it as just a a 10 plus year journey. And I think we show up on the good days and the not so good days on the board meetings that are great and the board meetings that are tough. And so I just think that we take a very enduring approach to what we do. And I think that's differentiated when once founders spend time with us. Yeah. Like you're so right. I think, you know, every website looks the same, but I always think like, the impact and the greatness of a firm is a function of the people who work there and their reputation and prior deals, especially when like things go sideways, right? For someone who's out there laying it on the line every day, it's not going to be perfectly linear. And It never is. <laughs> no, yes. no, as much as you'd want it to be. And maybe you get lucky sometimes, but isn't it like the sum of like everybody's background and they're like good people and they care about the portfolio companies and the people that work there. They're not just data on a spreadsheet, right? Yeah, 100%. And it's not, it also isn't just about the founder or the founding team. We get to know a lot of the company, certainly all of the functional leaders within a company we know. In some cases, we're very involved in hiring that group and, and helping design an organization as much as the founders want help. And, and it's about bringing your own values to that, right? And I think for me, that's a big part of the fun part of investing is bringing a lot of what I've done throughout my career into the trenches with our founders every day. Yeah. The first year at Graycroft, what surprised you? Like jumping from kind of working at companies, obviously you were a banker, but like getting into that seat, 
what was more challenging than you thought or easier than you thought? Because it's got to be a transition in a way, right? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I, a lot of my skill set, again, since I do mainly early stage investing, translates to kind of to being a company builder because that is what you're doing every day. But that said, I think the big moment, Tom, for me was like a lot of investment firms, we spend most of our Mondays vetting new deals and, and bringing founders into the firm to pitch and, and spend time with us. So on any given Monday, you might spend time with a fintech, a consumer social app, a healthcare business, a company in Africa. It is so broad. And that's what I was searching for. I love the breadth of the work. There's really nothing else like it. But as an operator, you, you're 100 miles deep and a few miles wide. And venture, and I think all investing is kind of the opposite. You're 100 miles wide you know, and a couple miles deep. And so I would think something's interesting. Meanwhile, a partner next to me has... 20 years of experience knowing that that business model hasn't worked for 20 years. It's not to say it may not work in the future, but I just didn't come with that context. So it was very humbling to start. And certainly the areas, you know, around Stripe and LinkedIn and the other things I've done, I had a competitive advantage because I've worked in those industries. But for industries outside of where I worked, as an operator, you're not studying everything else in the market. Whereas as a, in VC, you are, that's the job. And so getting to that market breadth, and I, I think we all still feel it. And now I'm sure we'll talk about AI. This is the next sprint and marathon, you know, we're doing every day is to try to keep up with that pace, but there's always something new you're pursuing. So that's kind of one of the real changes. And I think challenges that most operators feel coming into venture. Yeah, and I, I would think that there's a lot of really smart people in your industry who may never have been operators. And, you know, you talked earlier about working as a team because maybe where you might have a blind spot every now and then, that person fills it in, and that's why the team approach. Can you think of an example where you kind of came in at Graycroft with a portfolio company where your skill set was just spot on for the situation that they needed or that they were facing or the challenge that the CEO really couldn't figure out? For me, you know, initially it was really spending time on marketing, of course, but then also company and organization building. So a company was going through a culture shift. Culture is everything within companies, quite literally. And so I think most of the board members didn't really understand the morale shifts, some of the things that the CEO was struggling with, getting people on board with a new direction. This company had been in our portfolio quite a while. So it's hard to pivot, right? It's hard to shift after being in business for 10 years. And I think I brought a lot of compassion to that board meeting and then the conversations after as to why, why were the employee NPS scores not as strong and how hard it is to make that change. Nothing changes that easily. And, and I think with a younger workforce, change often is most effective bottoms up, not just tops down, right? The, a younger generation of workers, I think all workers now, especially post-COVID, don't want to have kind of a command and control work environment, right? Everyone needs to work together and things need to come bottoms up. And I think some investors feel like, you know, you can just apply pressure in an area and change happens. And it, that's, it's not always, it is never that easy. And I think having compassion, having led challenging orgs when we were acquired into Microsoft, that was a huge change for me and in fitting into this 100,000 person company. And so I've lived through a lot of kind of tumultuous times before I even started leading large teams. And so I have a lot of compassion for what it takes when you're trying to shift a team's focus and bring everyone along with you. Oh my God, totally. Because you did start your career growing businesses on a spreadsheet and then you went into a part of your career where you're actually doing it with human beings, which is super hard. And now you're kind of back to the spreadsheet. But yeah, you're dealing with people and emotions and now COVID and I want to work from home and maybe a, a, 
different generation of workers who see things differently, and, and that's positive too. But it's like super complicated to pull all that together, right? Absolutely. Well, and I joined in 2019. Now it's like parts of the world are unrecognizable, right, four years later. And so those lessons are different now. Yeah. And like I'm like droning on about this, but like building trust with the senior team, right? They have to trust you or else forget it. Absolutely. In, every, in everything, right? And I think that's a part of what founders need to learn. They have to trust their own instincts when they're hiring. That's everything. Kind of their first six to 10 hires often is the footprint for that company going forward. And ideally, they're staying with you as long as they can scale with you. And so I, I try to come to the table and look to build that trust. And, and trust is really just about being consistent over time, right? It's not one meeting, it's not one moment, it's showing up, it's being prepared, it's problem solving, right? We tried to build and expand a lot of trust with the SBB crisis in March. That was a, a, a pretty trying time for everyone, right? And you just try to step up and, and pull all of the levers you can to help your founders get through what have been really choppy waters for kind of the last 18 months. Driven by advancements in digital technologies, the fintech space has grown rapidly over the last decade, and recent AI trends have continued to accelerate scale. I asked Allison how she sifts through a now crowded space when making investment choices. Yeah, no, I mean, in addition to the breadth of the markets that we work in and getting to the bottom of the things that we're most interested in, picking the ultimate winners or, you know, ideally being in the first or second leaders in a market is the is the core of, of the job. And that's the fun and also very daunting part of it. We moved to more of a sector focus, but most of the partners have kind of majors and minors. So I do spend time on fintech. You know, I do spend time also in enterprise and consumer. We're kind of expanding our focus, given that if, if fintech in some categories is a bit oversaturated, it was historic funding in 2020. Then it was significantly increased in 2021. And then we found ourselves last year looking around and just really diagnosing the market. Like, how are the companies doing? Both the public companies, obviously, with valuations are compressed. That puts pressure on all the private investments and it trickles all the way down. So it's been a pretty challenging landscape. I spend time in both consumer businesses and then B2B businesses. And I think a lot of the market has shifted a little bit more focus into B2B and, and infrastructure. That said, consumer businesses remain very interesting. They're just inherently hard to scale unless that company has a great distribution or a network effect that allows you to grow users without taking all of your venture capital money and reinvesting it into paid media. So if people can manage that and grow cost-effectively, then it's interesting. I mean, certainly, you know, AI is a part of everything that we do. And I do spend time, especially in go-to-market tools with an AI focus, just because I would have been a consumer of those tools. Yeah. And it's fascinating. I mean, there's tons of debates, you know, about, is it a hope cycle? Is it a hype cycle? You know, what's real? But we think it's obviously a very it's a very real platform shift. Generative AI is going to change how we interact with technology, period. And I think the one interesting data point is, I think when ChatGPT came out at the end of last year, it took five days to get to a million users. It took Instagram 75, it took Spotify, I think 150, just to like put into context how fast this has moved. And people have it open. We use it all the time. I talk to friends of mine that are marketers, other investors, every discipline, right? People have it open, some sort of generative AI interface that they're using all the time to write blog posts, to correct things, you name it. So I think that's where we're assessing what is the impact, right, of 
generative AI on top of traditional AI models. FinTech has used AI models for a long time. The traditional AI tools are good at math, like they are good at portfolio, they're good at other quantitative research. Where the generative piece comes in is obviously the language models and the implications of that on can it take fraud detection, right, to a whole nother level? Can you personalize a consumer experience, right, to Tom's preferences based on all these other behaviors? Can you do customer service, which is a very hard thing to crack in all businesses, especially financial services? You know, that's an open area. So I think it's opening up all of these different pieces. And I think it's just a question, though, at the at the end of the day, there's been a lot written about this. For now, the incumbents within a lot of industries are the ones benefiting from, you know, the move of AI. And they're the ones that have the resources, the models. They can ingest data. They have proprietary data. So they can take AI and turbocharge their products, right? Frankly, faster in, you know, than a lot of the startups. Of course, we're betting on the startups to catch up and, and add value in many different ways. But I think that's always the question is, are these products going to be ingested in the bigger platforms and become features or help power part of it? Or are they going to be standalone companies? So that's always the biggest question of, you know, can this small business carve out a big enough wedge to be independent or a big meaningful business? Or is it frankly going to be easily replicated? What is that moat around the AI product? So that's kind of at the core, right, of everything that we're everything that we're looking at. We've been longtime fintech investors, you know, from Venmo and Braintree to public. So it's it's been a core thesis of ours, and and it's just getting more and more exciting. That's cool. What are common mistakes that you see founders make when they're coming to meet with you, or where do some founders fall short? Where hey, you know, if they had a different perspective or open-mindedness, they could have done better. I am very founder first in how I invest. And so, you know, having the benefit of, of working with a Carlson Brothers at Stripe or Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn, you see what it takes in terms of extraordinary unconventional thinking to take an idea and have the perseverance to build it over five to 10 years, because that's what it takes. But I think what I look for in the very early stage where we're investing is, does this individual, does Tom have a unique insight that makes him uniquely qualified to do something very special in this market, right? Have you worked in it before? Where is the root of your passion to solve this problem? And I think that's something that's critically important to have, that this isn't just an idea that you're kicking around and floating. It's like something that keeps you up at night that you are determined to solve for the next 10 plus years. And so I think coming with that insight, I, I love founders who have that perspective. They've worked in the industry or they've studied it enough or they've tried to build something and it failed. And it failed because there was a certain mousetrap that was missing and they're dead set on building that mousetrap. And so there's kind of just a burning vision of something to solve. So I think that's kind of piece number one. Piece number two for me is really being able to assess how can they build and scale a team, right? Are you going to be able to get people to follow you, right? Follow you on a Monday after an all hands? Are you going to be able to, you know, recruit people that frankly are going to probably take significant pay cuts to come to your startup and help you grow and scale? So can you not only paint a vision, but can you attract people who will get behind that vision with you? It's a bit of everything, right? It's super high IQ in most cases. It's super high EQ in other cases. It takes a core group of people to get an idea off the ground. Like you have to have an idea. And if there's a behind the idea, you need people to come execute with you. And so I think you look for people who, who is going to follow, right, this person, and are they going to be able to attract and retain, you know, similarly amazing people? Because that's at the core of what you have to believe. And then, of course, we look at, does this founder really understand the market? Do they understand their competitors? 
And can they explain what is their first product wedge, right? What is the first thing they're bringing to market that gives you confidence as an investor? Okay, I can see where this vision, it may be really far out, but this first product can, you know, does drive value. And can this person build something very differentiated? Like you said, so much of the startup space has been funded many times over. And so you have to believe the founder or that founding team can do something very different. What blows my mind is people who were founders who are now running like a trillion dollar company. The skill set from the beginning to that is absolutely crazy town. Yes. You know, like yeah. to then, okay, well, I could start this and maybe I'm a technologist and now I get like the Wall Street piece and building value. And like you have to be like so beyond brilliant and driven to do that. I wanted to ask you like when you invest in a company, you must be like, oh, I want to jump in and help day-to-day so bad, but you're kind of a board member and an investor. How do you have that kind of restraint? Like how active are you? How do you work that? Yeah, I mean, fairly active. I mean, we also, you know, follow the lead of the founder. In most cases, we own 10%, maybe 20% of a company. And so we're all in on that. And I don't think about the ownership levels day in and day out. It's like, we need to have this company be incredibly successful. And how can I do everything I can to help this person accomplish that? So I'm, we're really close. I mean, we'll spend time weekly, if not bi-weekly with one-on-one discussions, go pretty deep into what's happening in the business. I'm generally quite involved in any significant hiring that goes on, both to help vet folks and then help sell the opportunity as well. So it goes way beyond the board meeting. I think that was something that I was surprised by that, There are some VCs that are less engaged, I think, kind of beyond a board meeting. But I think most early stage founder investors, you love doing this because you want to be in the weeds early. And so it's it's a it's a mix. I mean, I think most of the founders that I work with, I'm looking for that partnership, too. Right. So if I do see something on the website or I see something in product, we always send our feedback, you know, and you hope the founders listen. um, But we're not always right. I don't suggest that I'm always right. You're N of one but you're just giving feedback for them to respond to. Or I I tend to give feedback in terms of, hey, here's path A, pros and cons. Here's path B, pros and cons. Here's my perspective. It doesn't mean that my experience a few years ago, you know, is totally relevant to today, but maybe 70% of it is. And what can we learn from that? So it's a partnership like anything else and really building trust. But we're pretty open. I mean, we're engaged in the products that our companies are selling. We generally get to know the buyers they're selling into. I mean, that's also part of the diligence we do before we invest. And so it's a tight collaboration. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot going on today. What do you think the biggest challenges for kind of the venture capital community is today? I think for us, it's really getting back to the core principles of the work. Like we are entrusted with capital to drive, you know, returns on that capital period. It's really about being incredible stewards of that capital, right? And in incredible boom times, there's different pressures. Obviously, the funding levels have declined meaningfully outside of AI and other sectors. And so it's this, there's a lot of ups and downs and you just have to find like a steady state. You want to know when you get excited about something because that's a core part of the job, but you have to just kind of keep a very level steady state perspective on the markets around us. You know, I would say a challenging part of the market has been in the growth stage companies. So kind of the later stage part of our business and with the compression in public multiples and and public valuations and even late stage valuations that have become newsworthy items have put a lot of pressure on those businesses. And so your assumption for what that exit is, is now likely lower, maybe meaningfully lower, which then of course you have to adjust your return profile for that. So, and then the access to capital has also been a challenge, right? I think investors are 
less forgiving than they have been in years. If you're missing certain milestones or if you go through a few rounds of funding and maybe you still haven't found product market fit, but like you may not be able to find more capital, like it might be over. And so that kind of, whereas before you kind of had several years, three, four years to kind of find your way through it, that is a shorter timeline, right? So when we're investing now, we have to get very crisp with the founders on, okay, if we're raising, you know, $4 million of capital, $6 million of capital in an early stage round, what do we believe are those milestones? What's credible? Because you need to hit them or get very close to them um, because the market's not very forgiving right now. We've just seen that compression and the appetite. Obviously, there's a huge appetite for risk in certain sectors. That is our job. But broad scale risk with very little diligence and kind of a wild market, like those days are over. And some of that actually is quite good, right? Some of that needed to, I think, change to have a healthier ecosystem. And in some cases to raise the bar on who's deciding to become an entrepreneur, because it was not that hard to start a company and to raise capital. It is much harder now. And frankly, you know, it, it and that makes sense. And I think you have to be really committed to that. So it's, you know, like with any industry, the seas are shifting and, and have been choppy, but we're pretty optimistic going forward. You know, we're in the business of optimism. We believe in the current stage of companies and people building extraordinary things. And, and now we just, I think we, we continue to have more scrutiny over the investments and, and continue to hold the bar very high for the work that we do. You know, one thing you just said, I think really sticks out. It's kind of like when you get to the later growth stage is when you might get exposed, which just puts all the onus back on picking the right business models in the beginning. Because, you know, if you're really going to scale, the business model has to be so enduring that it can't fall apart at the end because then they fit in with another company that can scale it further. But the discipline in a boom time can really go out the window, right? Right, exactly. And we've been, you know, we launched the firm in 2006. So 17 years of experience going through so many different economic cycles. It's never easy, but you do have to have, to me, it's this yin and yang between like extreme optimism. And then maybe it's just the operator and me, like, hearty pragmatism too about like, what does this company need to become? And it used to be at the seed in series A, the business model is kind of forgiven. It's the founder, it's the market. It's very early. In some cases, your pre-revenue. But by the series B and series C, that business needs to really feel like it is coming to its own. It has a defensible moat. And now investors can see a path to fund with very capital efficient growth. In the boom times, the capital efficient growth was, wasn't necessarily at the top of the list. It was kind of growth at all costs. And many companies went through this, even some of the best companies in the world. And so I think that, that they can be forgiven. They have the resources to patch up a, a broken nose. Uh, you know, a growth stage business doesn't always. And so I think that's, and it's unfortunate because there are some incredible category leading companies that should exist, need to exist, that are, you know, that are struggling or won't won't make it. And innovation will come from another area. But that I think that's been the area that that has been really challenged. Yeah. What advice do you have for other women looking to get into venture capital? I'm sure things have changed a lot in the last 20 years, but what have you learned in your career that you could pass along? There weren't that many women. I had spent a lot of time in operating roles and companies, even there's a lot of discussion about women in executive ranks. Both LinkedIn, Stripe, Microsoft had incredible female leadership and a lot of depth and breadth across the org. And so when I went to some of my first venture capital conferences, I really was looking around the room like, wow, okay, this is really what is written and talked about. Because until you live it, you don't 
totally uh, internalize it. And I think for us, you know, there are more and more women partners, women investors, our firm in particular, since Dana co-founded the, the firm, we have a very strong, very diverse group of investors. Um, and I think that's critically important. And founders are looking for that too. People need a diverse perspective and they're looking for a diversity of network. And so I think the backgrounds to get into venture over time, I think it's incredible to be an operator. Great if you've been in product at the end of the day to be a successful founder, you need a great product, period. So if you've worked in product, obviously people come out coming out of engineering are really valued. If you have a valued perspective, that is what founders are looking for. You can learn the fundamentals of investing, I think. It's, it's really how do you connect with the founder because that's how you can really get into an investment. And so I think there's, there's more and more networks. There's a lot done by region. So depending on where you are, just get really connected to folks in that market. But I think if you have a technology background and a passion for investing, you can always also get involved in angel investing, just get involved in investing clubs, even in going back to college and universities or just in communities. So there's lots of ways to get very small amounts of investing experience, and that can all help you build that network to, to accelerate into a career in VC. venture capital, every day is different, both for businesses and for investors. New challenges are par for the course in the current climate of innovation, but creating diverse teams with the widest pool of experience will prepare VCs and their portfolio companies for the unique obstacles they will surely encounter as they build and scale their businesses. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Allison for joining us on the show today. She has incredible experience from banking to the corporate side to venture capital. Companies would be lucky to work with her and Graycroft as they build and scale their businesses. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.